you can go ahead and turn over to Judges chapter 8. We're going to be continuing our study through this ancient book, this ancient collection, if you will, of short stories, most of which focus on leadership and on the need for the kind of king that Israel had not yet known, the kind of king that Israel's history would prove is a lot easier to recognize your need for than to find in reality, the kind of king that ultimately would only come in Jesus. Last week, we looked at one of the few stories in Judges that's really familiar. And a, lot of the, a lot of the Judges that we'll look at over the time, our time in this book are going to be names that are new to most of us. But last week, we looked at the story of Gideon, one of the, one of the Bible's most beloved characters. We, we, we tracked with him in his journey to trust, his journey to give up control over the terms of his life and to trust God to deliver him, him and Israel from the Midianites on God's terms, by God's strength alone. We followed that journey, and it was a beautiful story. Based on the cycle that we've seen so far in Judges, where we're used to seeing Israel go back into idolatry, be delivered by God into oppression as a punishment for their sin, cry out to God for deliverance only to have God rise, raise up a judge to deliver them. We're used to seeing the next step in that process being simply a statement about how long Israel had rest under the leadership of that judge. That's the way the last stories have ended. That's what we expect now after Gideon has delivered them th- from the hand of the Midianites. Now we expect to say, and Gideon ruled for 40 years and the land had rest, then he died the end. But that's not what we get. For the first time, the story veers off after the deliverance. And because we get a departure from the pattern we've seen, the author's trying to draw our attention there. He's trying to to, to make sure we're looking where he wants us to look. He wants us to see something about this story that clues us into Israel's spiritual condition. What he's drawing us into is Gideon's behavior after Gideon had strength and power and confidence. We're used to seeing Israel forget God and turn back to idols after the reign of a judge has come to a close. But here, here we get a look at how it happens during the reign of a judge. When he's still alive. Still with fresh memories of God's deliverance. How quickly things can turn bad. We're going to look at two chapters this morning. That means we're going to be taking a high-level flyover of a story with lots of beautiful details and twists and turns that would warrant lots more attention than we're going to give it this morning. What I want to do is pull a thread through both of the stories, the story of Gideon and the story of Gideon's son Abimelech, and help you to see how the thread that ties both of them together is the theme of kingship. It's really a a theme that's all through Judges, but this is the first time it comes to the surface. It's really important, and and the author wants us paying attention to what he says about kings, what the kind of king that Gideon pretended to be and Abimelech tried to be tells us about the the king that we really genuinely need. We want to tell the story this morning. That's what we're going to do for most of the time. Some of these stories... And it, they have so many interesting twists and turns and so many details that are worth our attention that uh, we have to resist the urge, I think, to apply every one of them, to stop at every turn in the story and try to make it clear like what you're supposed to get from this detail. We just want to let these stories be stories that, that, that impact us in the way a good story should, that take us into a time and a place and what God was doing in it. We're going to spend most of our time just following the stories But then we're going to finish our time with a couple of key lessons. This morning, two things only. Two disastrous leaders in Israel's history. 
and two crucial lessons. Two disastrous leaders and two crucial lessons. Yes, I did watch the debate last Sunday night. And no, this first point has nothing to do with the debate last Sunday night. Any resemblance to actual persons living or dead or actual events is purely coincidental. And what follows as a portrait of two disastrous leaders. I want to start by reading where we left Gideon off, okay? We left him off when Gideon was just finishing up a rout of Midian and about to go in hot pursuit of Midian's kings. What we'd seen before was lots of back and forth between Gideon and the Lord who kept trying to win his confidence. There was lots of God in the story we looked at last week. One of the things you're going to notice as we work through this week's story is that God is silent. Gideon, and then Gideon's son, he's gone rogue at this point. Now, I want, I want to bring you into the story in chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. This is where Gideon is, is trying to mop up after his victory. And at this point, he's already moved into his own agenda and away from the Lord's. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read the first, uh, the first section of the story that we're going to talk about this morning. I'm going to read verse 4 all the way to verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted, yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please, give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they're exhausted. And I'm pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel, and he spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. This is God's word. You can be seated. Gideon's after the two Midianite kings who had led the army that Gideon, with God's help, has just defeated. Those two kings have fled from the battle with what's left of their army, and based on the verses that come after the ones we've read, it's not much. 15,000 men are left of what had been a 120,000 soldier army. Gideon and his men are exhausted and hungry, and with good reason. They'd fought a big battle. They're on the chase. So they stop in a couple of separate towns and ask people there for help. They want some supplies, and they have good reason to believe these people would want to help them. People who lived in these villages had been living under Midianite oppression for seven years. They should be happy that Midian is on the run. They should want to do everything they can to make sure this victory holds. They should want to see these kings brought to justice. That's what they should want. But in both towns, the leaders balk. And we can understand that too, can't we? What they see is Gideon leading a band of 300 men in pursuit of two tyrannical kings who have 15,000 men. And what they say to Gideon is is sensible. You're asking us to side with you before the battle is over. You want us to to put in with 300 against 15,000. 
Have you already won it? Where, where are they? Where are these kings that you're pursuing? Why should we side with you? They don't believe, or they aren't sure, that Gideon and his army can get the job done. They might be rooting for Gideon, but they see what they see. And this battle looks far from assured. They don't want to bring down the wrath of Midian on their heads. Now, does this sound familiar? If you were here last week, does this sound familiar, this attitude? pretty much exactly the way Gideon faced the battle that he's just fought. When God called Gideon out to be a deliverer from Midian, his, a deliverer from Midian his, his response was, yeah, right, me? Look at them. And God was patient with him. And through episode after episode in that story last week, God won over his confidence, gave him test after test result to show that he was with them. So now Gideon's got an opportunity. Gideon's got an opportunity to show the same love that was shown to him. He's got an opportunity to say to the men of Succoth and the men of Penuel, I know these odds look bad. But but look what God just did. Look what he did. He defeated an army of 120,000. We didn't raise a sword. You can trust him. Gideon's got a chance to show the same patience that God had shown them. But what does he do? Gideon takes their doubt personally. Rather than deflecting their doubt, pointing them towards God and his goodness and his trustworthiness, Gideon takes their doubt personally. And because he takes their doubt personally, we're seeing something at work in Gideon's heart. He's now taken personal responsibility for the victory too. By doubting him they're showing, he, by, by taking it as, a, as an expression of doubt in him, he's showing that he thought they should have trusted in him for the battle that he had just won. Gideon has now placed himself, in other words, at the center of this story. It's about him, about his victory, about his trustworthiness. Not about a lack of faith in God, but a lack of faith in Gideon. And he responds in kind. You doubt me? When I get done with them, I'm coming back for you. And that's exactly what he does. In the next verses, we're told of Gideon capturing these kings, coming back to these same towns. He's taken names. He gets an insider to give him a full catalog of the people who doubted him, and he does exactly what he said he was going to do. He whips them with thorns, and he tears down a tower, and he kills, and he kills all the men of the city in Penuel. same sort of attitude comes out in this next episode in the Gideon story. Think Gideon, having seen God's deliverance, now putting himself at the center of the story. It's all about him now. Think about that in this next episode. Why is he pursuing these defeated kings so relentlessly? One might hope, oh, it's because he finally wants the purity in the land that God had called Israel to. The kind of purity that that the Israelites under Joshua had never been able to establish. They'd always let these neighbors stick around And they've been traps for them ever since. Maybe now Gideon wants purity. And he's going to pursue these guys to the end. Well, that's not it at all. That's not it at all. Look at verses 18 and 19. He's caught up with Ziba and Zalmunna, the kings that he's been pursuing. He says to them, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? We don't know anything about this. This hasn't happened in the story as we've been hearing it. They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of king. Apparently this is just a group of men that 
these two kings had, had destroyed based on their own whim or some reason that were not given. And Gideon said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. Why is Gideon pursuing these kings so hotly? God never told him to do it. God is silent at this point in the story. He's on his own agenda now. He's pursuing them for vengeance because they've killed his brothers. Whose agenda is Gideon about? His own. When he's powerful, when he's secure, when he feels a sense of control, God has receded from his view. And in the place of God, he's put his own sense of what's best. And he treats people based on how they've treated him. He's vindictive and even cruel. One more episode in Gideon's downfall that I want to draw your attention to before we pull this same thread in the story of his son Abimelech. This one is the worst of all. After he's caught and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, he comes back to the sort of Israelite heartland, and the men of Israel say to him in verse 22, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Here the thing of kingship comes to the fore in a new way and judges. It's always been in the background. Now it comes to the surface in a new way. And it makes sense why Israel would want Gideon to be their king. Judges has made us believe that part of the reason for their problems has been a lack of leadership. The fact that when Joshua died, no one rose up to take his place. And now they have this guy through whom God has just delivered them from an amazing, unbeatable army. And they want to establish a dynasty. That's what's what's buried in this you rule over us and your son and your grandson language. They want a dynasty. And they're giving Gideon credit for saving them from the hand of Midian. Now here Gideon's got another opportunity, just like the one he had with the men of Succoth and Penuel. And it seems for a moment as if he's going to take it and and, and be for God in this opportunity. Verse 23, Gideon says, I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. That sounds good, right? Way to go, Gideon. He's learned his lesson. He's back to a center. He's remembering who delivered them in the first place. And, and yet, oh, the picture is not so clear. Commentators help me to see this to pull some of the details in what follows to the surface and show that while Gideon says he doesn't want to be their king, everything he does from here on out is kingly. He's taking the office that he's denying by his words. Initially, he deflects. It's his George Washington moment. You want me to be king? I will not take it. But he doesn't dispute that he's the reason for their deliverance. They give him credit for the victory over, over Midian, and he doesn't say, no, it was the Lord who did it. He just moves right on. He lets that compliment stick. Kind of reminds you of the athlete in the postgame who, who's, who's, who's being given credit and celebrated for having an amazing game and bringing the victory, who just sort of, sort of deflects. Well, I got a good team around me. I got some good people. You know... No one does this alone. Yeah, but you're not denying that you were the key to the victory, right? It's a humble brag. And that's what Gideon's doing. And then as soon as he's emphasized that the Lord must rule over them, look what he does. 
He takes tribute from them like a king would. He says, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them, paying tribute as they would to a king. And then look what he does with this spoil. He takes it all, all the golden earrings, and he uses them to fashion what's known as an ephod. Now, an ephod is a device that was designed by God in the law of Moses for seeking God's will. It was associated with some of the vestments that the priests would wear at the temple or the tabernacle. In its origins, it was a gift of God to help the people submit to God. As Gideon uses it now, it's his tool for pursuing God's advocacy for his agenda. As Gideon makes it, it's, it's, his, it's about his power and just using a resource that would make him even more powerful. God did not tell him to make an ephod. He did not tell him to set up this ephod in his hometown so that all the people have to come to him if they want to find out what God wants. He didn't tell him to make an object that could represent physically God's power and bring it under his own uh, discretion. But that's what he's done. Like a king. doesn't stop there. Verse 29 says that Jerubbaal, it's another name for Gideon, son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. It sounds like retirement, but it's not. Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. He set up a harem, just like one of the ancient kings. This is not what normal people did in the ancient world. You don't, you don't have a bunch of wives in the ancient world. You can't afford it. It's what the uber-powerful, the wealthy do. It's what the kings do. He had a concubine who was in Shechem who also bore him a son, and his name was called Abimelech. Concubines are things that kings had in the ancient world. And he names his son by his concubine Abimelech, which is translated roughly, my father the king. Gideon says that he doesn't want to be king, but he's acting like a king. His confidence... His strength and his power has brought out the worst in his desire for control. And his behavior models for Israel the same exact attitude towards God, turning God into a tool for their agenda. God not being trustworthy in his agenda must be rerouted into my agenda. They treat God like the pagans treated their gods, like Israel's neighbors were treating Baal. Not as a Lord who reigns over all in wisdom and power and justice. But as a deity who can be manipulated and brought into line on my terms. Gideon has modeled this behavior and that's exactly what Israel takes from his model. Look at verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal bereath their God. Why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they take as many resources as they could get. They got, they've got the God who delivered them from Midian. They can appeal to him when they need to, but why not hedge their bets? Because it's about my agenda and whatever power I can pull into my agenda. The people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they didn't show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good he'd done to Israel. Gideon's legacy is a mixed one. There were some 
great things about what he did. His trust in God modeled in the battle against Midian is powerful. Something to, to pull from and to emulate. But his legacy was deeply, deeply ambiguous. And the seeds that he planted in his power, in his strength, in his willingness to have God recede from view, the seeds that he planted come to full flower in the reign of his son Abimelech. I want to pull the thread through chapter 9 and help you to see that Abimelech takes what Gideon was doing, his posture towards power and towards people, and, and takes it even into another step. He, he, not only has God receded from view, or has God become a resource for him to exploit, God has gone altogether for Abimelech. He's not in the picture in chapter 9. Let me show you this through a few examples from this story. Chapter 9 on its own is an incredible short story. It's got details that weave in and out, threads that, that where, where, where things that happen early on come back around at the end. It's got an incredible fable that you could pull out as a beautiful work of literary art on its own. It's got a lot of stuff we're going to try to talk about, but a lot more that, that you could find out with some extra time on it this afternoon. I encourage you to do that. It's a beautiful chapter. I just want to pull, it for the, thre- pull the thread of kingship and leadership and what happens when, when a people are subject to a king who is godless. First episode I want to draw your attention to is at the beginning of chapter 9. This is where Abimelech seizes power. Up until this point, every judge in the story of Judges has been appointed by God, called out by him explicitly. Many of them have even been tentative and timid in responding to God's call. Now for the first time, We have someone who reigns by a sheer, raw will to power, not based on the call of God. Abimelech, we're told, was an illegitimate son. He was not the son of one of Gideon's wives, but the son of his concubine. He wasn't raised in Gideon's family alongside Gideon's 70 other sons. He was raised with his mother's people in Shechem. He was an outsider. And and it's not difficult to sympathize with him, with what that life must have been like must have been painful, difficult way to grow up, right? It's not difficult to imagine the insecurity that he would feel, the, the sense of inadequacy, the grievance that he would have nurtured, the desire to prove the doubters wrong, to have the last laugh on those who were inside of the club he'd been shut out of. That sort of Psychology isn't on the surface of the text, but it definitely plays out in the way that Abimelech seizes power and uses it. He operates with this sense that he is only going to get from life what he takes for himself. And Gideon's death has created a power vacuum. Every, everybody in this story assumes that Gideon's sons would reign. You can tell they've picked up the cues in what Gideon's behavior has been pointing them to. They recognize Gideon's living as a king, and it makes sense that one of Gideon's sons would take the throne. Abimelech assumes that too, and he assumes that the people of Shechem, his mother's people, would assume that. So he goes to them, his mother's people, and starts to whisper, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, Abimelech says to them, which is better for you, that all 70 the sons of Jerubbaal rule over you, or that one rules over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. What's he telling them? Somebody's going to rule over you. It's going to be one of Gideon's sons. Why not me? We're kin. That'll work well for you. 
So you go to the leaders of Shechem, who command enough men for me to get this job done, convince them to support me, my candidacy for, for the kingship, and I'll take care of all of Gideon's sons back at Orpha. They buy this line, hook, line, and sinker. They, they take him up on it. They, give him, they take up a collection of 70 pieces of silver, one for every one of, of Gideon's sons. And Abimelech uses this silver to hire what verse 4 describes as worthless and reckless fellows. And these worthless and reckless fellows head over to Gideon's house at Ophrah. And verse 5 says they killed his brothers sons of Jerubbaal, 70 men on one stone. One stone, probably a reference to a stone that would have been used for slaughter of, of animals, maybe sacrifices or animals that they would be eating. What that detail tells us is that this was no surprise attack. This didn't happen fast. These 70 brothers were captured and were killed one by one. It's cruel. It's vindictive. It's horrible. And that's Abimelech. After taking care of all the competitors, all except one, Jotham, who escapes, Abimelech is made king at Shechem. And when Jotham, Gideon's one son, who escaped the carnage, hears that he's been made king, Jotham comes to a hill near the city and delivers one of the most beautiful pieces of literature in the Bible, known as Jotham's Fable. This is the second piece to the Abimelech story I want to draw your attention to. We're still pulling just one single thread, the kind of kingship that develops when the only thing that matters is my power and my agenda, as if God has no right to speak in to hold me accountable. Jotham's fable is the next detail I want you to notice. Look at verse 7. I'm just going to read this in total for you. It's beautiful. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on the top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. And here comes the fable. It's a lot like Aesop's fables. It takes things that are just part of their natural environment and, and turns them almost into humans, into human actors, and with a moral at the end. Listen to what he says. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? The olive tree is not looking for the job. He doesn't have a power trip. He's already got a good job. He has no need to change what he's doing. He's already really useful. He's not having it. Same thing for the fig tree. The tree said to the fig tree, verse 10, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? So then they try the vine. The trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? These dignified, useful trees, they're not interested in power. They're content where they are. So they make their way down the pecking order to the bramble. The trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. Now the bramble in this ancient world was like a, 
kind of like a tumbleweed, but rooted to the ground. Just a bunch of tangled sticks and thorns, useful only for tripping you up when you're trying to get somewhere. It had no purpose that was, that was helpful. So the bramble is all over it. Oh, you want me to be king? Yeah, I accept. But here are my terms. The bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. He's over-eager, and now he's over-promising. No massive tree is going to be able to bend down under the shade of a bramble that doesn't have leaves to shade you anyway. He's over-promising in his over-eagerness, and then he's also going to warn them. If not, if you're not in good faith, if you're just playing with me and my insecure feelings, then let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. He's volatile. He's over-promising in his over-eagerness. He's insecure and aggressive when he's doubted or slighted. The point is pretty clear, the fable. Jotham just makes sure of it. Jotham applies it in verse 16 through the end of verse 21. I want to pick it up in verse 19. Jotham says to the, to the men of Shechem, If you've acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbaal and with his house this day, Then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. Good, goody for you. You guys have fun with that. But if not, if you've not acted in good faith, if you've not treated Gideon in the way that he deserved to be treated, then let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. In other words, if you guys weren't acting in good faith, then let you destroy one another. And that is exactly what happens. The third thing to notice about the Abimelech story, so you've seen him, his power grab, you've seen Jotham representing God's statement over what Abimelech has done. And then in the final, the final act, you see God returning on Abimelech's own head his, his just due for treating other people as if God is not represented in them, as if they don't bear his image and have dignity that's worth protecting, for treating them as if God doesn't exist. God makes him pay in the last scene in the story. Soon after Jotham's fable, Bimelech has ruled now for three years over Israel, verse 23 says that God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbaal might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. The stage is set. God has re-entered the picture. He has inserted himself into the story of the one who would elbow him out. And the exact scenario that Jotham's fable describes comes to pass. Here's how it goes down. The men of Shechem have decided that things aren't as good as they'd hoped for under Abimelech. They start to put their own ambushes in the mountaintops so that they can rob people who pass by that way. Kind of gives Abimelech a black eye for not being able to protect people who are in his territory. And it pads their pockets because apparently they weren't getting as much as they wanted out of Abimelech's reign. Well, under these circumstances, a man named Gaal comes to town. Verse 26 
moves into Shechem with his relatives and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. They start to prop him up. They start to make him think like he might have a future as a ruler in this city. They have a huge party in his honor and they get a little wine in his belly and, and bolstered by that liquid courage, Gaal starts to talk some talk. Here's what he says. Who is Abimelech and who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Skip to verse 29. Would that this people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army. Come out. Now, Zebel, one of Abimelech's officers, overhears Gaal's words. He decides Abimelech needs to know. He sends messengers to wherever it was that Abimelech had been at that time and suggests an ambush of his own. Abimelech responds. He divides his men into four companies. They scatter around the city and they wait. Now listen to this. Verse 35. Gaal, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city and Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebel, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebel says to him, When's the last time you got your eyes checked, dude? You mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. How much wine did you drink last night? Gaal spoke again and said, Look, People are coming down from the center of the land. One company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. And Zebel said to him, Where's your mouth now, you who said who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Put your money where your mouth is. Kicks him out the door, slams the gate, and leaves him to do what he can against Abimelech's army. The battle goes exactly as you'd expect it to. Abimelech completely destroys Gaal and his men. But here's where it gets interesting and tragic. Abimelech doesn't stop with Gaal. He's not content with a proportional response. This treachery against him, this personal slight, this doubting of his fitness or his power as a ruler, it provokes him to slaughter everyone in the town. Look at verses 46 and following. When the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard it, wait, actually back it up. Verse 45, Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and he killed the people who were in it and he razed the city and he sowed it with salt, cursing it, making it unusable. And when the men of the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard it, they entered the stronghold of the house of El Barith, the son of the last place, the last ditch stand, some sort of tower that would have been fortified where they probably would have had provisions and could have holed up for some time against him. And Abimelech's not having it. He sends his men out to the surrounding countryside. They grab uh, branches and limbs. They pile them all up around the tower. He sets fire to that tower and we're told that all the people at the tower of Shechem also died. A thousand men and women, innocents, who had nothing to do with the plot against him. Just as the fable had predicted, fire has come out from Abimelech and devoured the leaders of Shechem. Still not content, Abimelech moves on to a nearby town called Thebes to destroy it too. And this is where the story comes full circle and the rest of Jotham's curse comes to pass. 
He's attacked Thebes. He's come to their tower. He's going to burn that one too, just like he did in Shechem. But just as he approaches it, look what happened. Abimelech came, verse 52, to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man of his armor bearer and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, A woman kill them. And his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his own home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech. Everything about this story, friends, fits the theme of a tyrannical leader overcompensating for his sense of inadequacy, trying to prove himself insecure, outraged when doubted or opposed, a man who lived as if there were no God, completely unaccountable in his leadership. And that's where the story ends. Thump. Like so many others in Judges, no attempt to apply it, no attempt to encourage us by it, So what are we supposed to do with a story like this one? I'm going to give you two lessons. Don't be like Gideon and Abimelech. There's lesson number one. I know that sounds simplistic, but I really think that's one of the things we're supposed to get from this story. Don't be like these guys. Now, I know you're thinking, of course I'm not going to be like these guys. I'm not going to be king of anything, anywhere, anytime. And I think that there's some truth in that. And I don't want to reduce this story and its emphasis on kingship to, uh, I don't want to eliminate the uniqueness of this time and this place and this setting. But that said, there's a lesson here for us. When Gideon felt secure, when he was confident in his power, when he didn't see vividly his need for God, God recedes from his view and he goes after his own agenda. And there isn't one of us here who isn't going to be tempted to do exactly that. When we don't feel our need for God, when we're not in crisis mode, then we can tend to think as if our lives and the opportunities and the privileges that he's put into our life are ours to use as we see fit. As if he has no say. As if he has no claim. We're not kings and we're not likely to have any kind of power that could be mistaken for kingship in our life, but all of us have power in some form. We have power in our families. Power over students, maybe, if you're a teacher. Power over employees at work. You have purchasing power through your money. You have the power of the vote. You have all sorts of power that you may not recognize. Opportunities and privileges that God has put into your life. And the point of this story for us is that God puts these powers, these opportunities and privileges in our life, not as a blank check to do whatever we will with them, but as a stewardship for which he will hold us accountable. We can't treat others as if God isn't watching us, as if the only justification I need for my actions is my ability to do what I want. Don't be like Gideon and Abimelech. I think the main lesson here is that we shouldn't follow leaders like Gideon and Abimelech. We need a leader who is not like Gideon or Abimelech. I think in our, in our culture, we're instinctively suspicious of leaders and authority. It's easy to read a story like this one and to see our assumptions confirmed. Leaders are bad for you. 
Bible consistently and clearly teaches the importance of leadership, though. Leadership and authority are critical for flourishing, creating a context in which people are cared for, in which people are protected and cultivated. But, so so, so don't see this story as a criticism of leadership in general. See this story as evidence that the Bible is profoundly realistic about what power does to people. That leadership can go wrong quickly. That it can be abused. I think that realism gives the Bible more credibility, especially when the Bible celebrates leadership. It's not celebrating leadership because it's naive, but because it knows the importance of something that, yes, can be abused. This this tale is here to help us see, not that. Don't follow men like this. And ultimately, it's here to help us see a picture of Jesus that, that pops out with more beauty and power and vividness than it, was if, if, than it would if we didn't have this picture for contrast. Think of Gideon and Abimelech as kind of filling out, creating a kind of negative space where Jesus and a portrait of him and his beauty pops. Where they lack where they're missing, where their goodness drops out, Jesus and all of his beauty shines forth. Think about it. Think about Gideon and Abimelech claiming power and control for their own agenda, ruling as if they're unaccountable to anybody who couldn't stop them. And compare that to Jesus who all through the Gospel of John says things like what he says in John 6. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. What we need is a leader who won't exploit us for his own agenda, but will give us life, protection, security because he rules for our good and not his own. Think back to Jotham's parable. To the bramble who took the job of king to compensate for his own inadequacy, trying to prove himself for once and for all that he's not subpar. An inadequacy that made him vindictive and cruel and violent and unpredictable and compare that to the one who had nothing to prove. To the one whom Philippians 2 tells us was, was with God, enjoying equality with God, but choosing that glory not something to be grasped, to be held onto at all costs, but willingly, with nothing to prove, empties himself, takes on the form of a man and lives a life just like ours giving himself for the weak and the despised. Jesus, like Abimelech, was betrayed. There was treachery against him. But he chose betrayal willingly and submitted to a mockery that none of us will ever experience, a mockery of his name, and didn't open his mouth in defense. He chose to be a victim in order to redeem the weak. He did not victimize those who turned against him. And Paul says, because of this, God has exalted him above every other power. And because of this, one day, every knee will bow before him. But his power, his reign as king, comes not by demonstrating his own cruel strength and fearful violence, but through self-chosen weakness, through victimhood, 
And ultimately, through a death that death could not hold down. A death so perfect, so all-sufficient for the sins of all who would trust in him, that it was completely emptied of its power. Jesus reigns now through his own self-chosen weakness to give life to everyone who looks to him. Gideon and Abimelech show us what we need is Jesus. Thanks be to God that he's given him. Father, help us through these stories, as ugly as they are, to see the beauty of your work in Christ and give us faith to believe in him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.